she did it. What if Sydney killed Casey and Steve? And why would she do that? Maybe she had the hots for Steve and killed them both in a jealous rage. What would Sydney want with Steve? She has her own bubble butt boyfriend, Billy. Oh. Maybe she's a slut, just like her mother. You're evil. Please, it's a common fact. Her mother was a tramp. Cut some slack. She watched her mom get butchered. Yeah, and it fucked her up royally. Think about it. Her mother's death leaves her disturbed and hostile in a cruel and inhumane world. She's delusional. Where's God, etc. Completely suicidal. One day she snaps. She wants to kill herself, but she realizes that teen suicide is out this year, and homicide is a much healthier therapeutic expression. Where do you get this shit? Ricky Lake. Margot Mutter. I'm Vex Gold. And I'm Karen Charm. And, and we're, we're out, out to, to get you. Every time I'm like, what if I get a little silly with it? <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. I'm your unreliable narrator. Vex, our sirens call. And together we're plumbing the depths of queer text and horror. And we're about to carve up Wes Craven's 1996 slasher innovation sensation scream. And our guest, cartoonist, colorist, Karen Charm is here. KCHAP at Charm Gardens, author of Four Years. You can check out their Patreon. And I am so excited you're here. Are you here for a good time? Oh, I'm here for the best yeah. time. A scary time. <laughs> Tonight, Karen is the master of ceremony as captain of the Sydney Prescott fan club. I would love to apply to be vice captain of that fan club, quite frankly. It comes with bangs. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. (laughs) The most feathered bangs everywhere you look. Like eyelashes. (laughs) God bless her. But before we really dig into things... Karen, thank you for joining us, and maybe you want to tell listeners a little bit about you, what your journey was into horror, and why this was at the top of your list when we decided we were wanting to talk. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for the invitation. I adore you both, and uh, this is a perfect excuse just to bask in your loveliness for a little while. (laughs) That's what this show is for me, with you, (laughs) with everybody we bring on here. It's just such a good opportunity to talk with friends and get together over some disruptions in normal society Mm -hmm. on film. Yeah, that's why we wanted to do it. So that being said, I am not typically like I appreciate horror, but it's never been like my genre too much. But what I am, I am a millennial. And so I was, you know, entering a moment in my life right when Scream was coming out. And I was about in middle school around the time. And I happened to be in a friend group where I had one friend who was like completely obsessed with horror, specifically like Halloween. I don't think I would have ever known how many Halloween sequels there were if not like spending time (laughs) with this kid. The answer is arguably far too many. Too many, too many. (laughs) But around that time, that was when the Paul Rudd one came out, which I guess is not held up in esteem. Mm. But, uh, you know, it was cool at the time. So yeah, we would have these sleepovers watching horror movies and specifically like all the Halloweens back to back. So I knew enough from that exposure to kind of 
be really plugged in when Scream was coming out and it really seemed to capture the epitome of what like cool teenager was at the time. Oh, it's such a 90s movie. Oh, yeah. So it was really like put up on the radar. It's like, ooh, this is like the thing. I probably did not see it in theaters since it was rated R and I didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) But I certainly saw it like soon after and, you know, watched some of the sequels. But then in the past few years, be able to revisit Scream and just like how it holds up and develops and gives more every time you watch it. And then like each sequel, it's like I'm sure other people have varying mileage, but it's just like so good. I love the whole saga and the characters are amazing. And a couple of years ago during Halloween season, you know, the month of October and beyond, we were watching all these different horror movies and my partner and I watched Scream. It was her first time watching it and it became an obsession. <laughs> so we have like ghost face trinkets everywhere, a ghost face costume hanging in the window right now. And it's just been like really fun to really reinvest in the movies with like a uh, a partner in crime, if you will. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Oh, you got to have a you got to have a partner. So while I might not be like the biggest horror person, I think I'm good for this movie because I am very perhaps unhealthily obsessed with comparing myself to other people slash movies. So, you <laughs> that know, is a strategy. It fits the theme. I mean, your friend must have loved this because it's so steeped in Halloween specifically too, mm-hmm. like even down to when they're using it as a score. And I think, you know, it's easy to look back with the eyes we have now and not see it as Cutting edge as that script was by Kevin Williamson, a gay icon, too. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, this is, I don't know, it's just, it's just like, it feels like it captures a time and a place mm. in such a way that you don't get a lot. So much. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like we kind of touched on that when we did Fright Night with Zoe. Mm-hmm. We talked about that really capturing, like, a time and a place. And I think Scream does that so, so well in a way that's sort of akin with what we were saying with Fright Night. And I just think it's it's so fun so much fun like scream is truly a comfort movie for me and i'm like Mm -hmm. let's not unpack any of that but (laughs) it's just incredible i love the fact that it takes place in wine country right Mm -hmm. like it's almost the next progression in the realization of like how white flight was a failure and just like how families moved themselves to the suburbs and they thought they were getting Mm -hmm. away from all this. And you see that in the 80s too, which, you know, are particularly either fantastical, set in suburbs, often incredibly white. And so it's Scream. I'm not going to say it's not. But you have like the new generation that's born from that fear that was assuaged, but it's all still going to bubble to the surface eventually. Like, you can't outrun what you fear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I really like that they have it set. And it's, it also plays to the small town aspect in, like, a lot of slashers. But I could watch this movie a thousand times. and it's yeah, I probably have watched this movie a thousand times. <laughs> easily. So I guess before we take it beat per beat, what does Scream mean to you, Bex? Oh, look, I am who I am, and who I am is gay. And Sissy <laughs> Prescott is just so, she means so much to me, and I love her dearly and want only good things for her. To get a little broader and talk about the franchise, I suppose, was sad that she wasn't in sex, but also was like, I hope she's having a lovely time. <laughs> yeah. I hope she's, like, hanging out at the house 
is watching some movies, taking a bubble bath, mm-hmm. has like a dog. Like I hope she has a great time to herself. I miss seeing her face, but she deserves to rest. She deserves Absolutely. it. And I just I think having a lead that you can carry through so many films and I never tire of seeing her. And I think that's pretty cool. There's a great oral history of Scream by mm-hmm. The Ringer that came out a year or two ago. If anyone's interested in taking a look back at the casting of this movie, they've got a lot of great pieces in there from the actors themselves as well as the casting directors. And they talk a little bit about casting Nev Campbell because mm-hmm. there were, I believe, three actresses out for the role. Oh, yeah. But they were doing a very prolonged casting. And they said with nev that she just really embodied her character and it felt like the a lot of interiority Mm. that you could read on her body language and face which helped kind of sell the reality of her character yeah Yeah. i think sydney is great for that reason like for a lot of times when you get into slashers it's pretty easy to have flat characters especially when a lot of them are gonna die anyway (laughs) and that's sometimes just a trapping of the genre but i think and Scream, and also specifically with Sydney, even the things she doesn't say feel very significant to me, and I think that in part is owed a lot back to the performance, you know? Like, you say that interiority, that body language, she sells it, and it looks so good, and it makes her feel so believable and real, and I just love her very much. Hope she's having a nice day. That actually brings up the first question that we got, whoa! Hit the other ones later towards the end of the show, but this felt really prescient to this discussion. So this is from Rachel, he, him, and Rachel writes, Hi all, as a butch lesbian horror fan, I love and appreciate Out to Get You So Much. We appreciate you. I love butch lesbians. Thank you. That's all. What a great podcast. (laughs) I just, this is what it's all about. Rachel continues. I know others might ask about the gay subtext of Stu and Billy, so I wanted to bring up something a bit less obvious. Let's talk about it. (laughs) What do you think about a lesbian reading on Sidney Prescott? Her relationships with men have never clicked with me, even when they're not toxic murderers and just normal guys. Her relationships with Tatum and Hallie, for example, felt far more intimate to me, and the loss far greater when they died than when she lost boyfriends or male friends. What do you all think of a lesbian Sydney? Thanks again for this amazing pod, Rachel. I think that's objectively fact. Yeah, class A girl kisser. Mm. Yes. Bring up Haley. They were roommates, right? Yeah, they sure were. They were just good friends. They were just gal pals. I think about, especially in this one, like Sydney may not have come to that knowledge on her own yet but the way she reacts to touching billy she talks Mm -hmm. to tatum about this maybe she's like an ace lesbian who knows people can exist bigger than just their prior relationships yeah absolutely you know billy and derek i guess mark is is oh that's his name yeah yeah i like to think that's a code name (laughs) short for marcia we're keeping the real wife undercover yes my friend watched that movie and hated Mark so much and wanted him to die or be the killer in that film and then was devastated at the end when none of those things happened. <laughs> and we just recently watched Scream 5 together and she was like, what the fuck do you mean she's married to Mark? With the like most amount of venom I have ever heard in her voice 
for this one note man who is not I'm even in her. that film. You know, there's an argument yeah, that five and six splinter timeline, you can like, yeah. you know. Time travel has not been explored in the stab movies, I believe. As pointed out. So I see the opening. Yeah. Um, yeah, you were talking about interiority and like Scream is like all about interiority. Like everything is moving so fast and the script is so sharp. Mm-hmm. That it's like things get like glancing mentions and like you get just enough to sort of like understand before it moves on because there's just so much to do. So, so many of the characters have this deep well of emotion and interiority that we like only can sort of get the bare shape of and like Sydney especially in the first one represents so much of that I mean like yes we see the Indigo Girls poster on her bedroom wall. That poster come on now but just yeah everything with her relationship with billy and then her closeness with tatum who the whole time is just reinforcing how great billy is and how great they are together it's like oh billy's perfect he's like so wonderful it's like great it's like the perfect completion of their double date dynamic Mm -hmm. but it's just like yeah does sid have like any interest in this and then like not really it's like they finally have sex later in the movie spoilers and then they cut to afterwards and they're like on opposite sides of the room room. i don't think that was not looking at each other anybody it was yeah you never want to hear i'm fine after sex no god like, sorry, that was two gay people who just had sex with each other and were like, oh. Yeah, that's absolutely a confused young gay man. <laughs> confused about many things. So many. <laughs> uh, Karen, what about you? What does Scream mean to you? What does Scream mean to me? I think that it does represent like a bit of, for better or worse, this kind of template of what quote-unquote cool is. In the sense of that it's like, you know, smart and sarcastic and like everybody, like the fashion and aesthetic is like so pitch perfect. And and like, keep in mind, this is like the idea of watching like 26 year olds playing teenagers as a like 13 year old or whatever I was just like, oh, yeah, those are adults slash teenagers creating this impression that like you move on from, but it's always kind of there. But it's just also such like a well-made piece of film art whatever it's so good like like i said you can watch it a thousand times and it's like great and i love it's a great first chapter of the sydney prescott journey Mm -hmm. because it's like watching all the sequels and then going back you kind of get struck of like where she started and how much this awful event has changed her life and like opened her up and closed her off in like so many different ways. She starts off in this pajama outfit, really looking like, you know, it was really reminding me of, you know, Jan from Greece when they're all sitting around like watching like Aww, <laughs> the yeah. Bieber commercial. Yeah, it's like, that's cute. It's like cute little wholesome teen with mm-hmm. the bangs. Like, wow who is this girl i need to know more and then she like uses the internet a little bit like early version of the internet so studious like what what's there and the first one doesn't really give you that much but like as the story continues you like see so much like clueless had come a couple years before but that movie and kevin williamson too Mm -hmm. really pushed like this whole generation of late 90s early 2000s horror 
that I think even goes all the way up to feeling that in Fright Night. Yeah. Everybody who's anybody who's a young actor wants to be in these movies after the first one. And so yeah. it was really something people latched on to. I think it's really, like, it's so fun with Scream specifically. Anyone who's anyone wants to be in these movies. Your real get is you want to be the first kill in these oh, movies. Oh, yeah. You want to be the first kill. Let's get on to that. I love this scene so much. Like, I know it's almost... 30 years now but this is an all-timer yeah. oh yeah it's like so good i was watching last night and taking notes and i was like wrote almost like a half a page of notes and it was just on the first scene i was like i gotta slow down i was yeah. like don't want to fill up my whole <laughs> notebook but just like everything is like so bright and clean like drew's got the blonde hair like the white sweater the light mm-hmm. but the dark lips right yeah it's all like so good so perfect and the way it's shot like they're using these like wide anamorphic lenses to like get so much of it there's like a bit of like it's coming at mm-hmm. you but then as the camera follows her through the room there's like a distortion effect as like the room is like morphing around her so it's so captivating and dream like like right away in that way it's almost kind of claustrophobic yeah Mm-hmm. and Drew Barrymore, Casey Becker, mm-hmm. like that little nod she gives when he asks what that noise is and that she's making popcorn and she just smiles and goes, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. And just like, I guess like a word that's going to crop up a, a fair bit, so let me be the first to say it. On the meta level of this, mm-hmm. to sell your whole film on Drew Barrymore's in this yeah. and everyone's like, Drew Barrymore's in that, I'm going to go see that. And then they sit down and Drew Barrymore's dead. And you're like, great. <laughs> Let's go into the film, just establishing the presence, like right out of the mm-hmm. gate with Roger Jackson's ghost face oh, voice. That voice, and it like slides into it because it's like a mm-hmm. phone call becomes such a source of terror throughout this movie and beyond. But it's like when it starts off, she's like so happy to be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. wrong number. It happens to everybody. Take, Take it, it easy. easy, and then just hangs up and it's like, this is fine. And it's almost like the forgotten politeness that used to extend when you had landlines. You would just call numbers, and sometimes they were wrong. And, you know, there's something kind of salacious about talking to someone flirtily on the phone that you don't know. And then the way he uses that is kind of a seduction to keep her on the line and slides right into that. Oh, my God. To see your guts from the outside. That's so good. Like, just... Oh, it does so much work in this film to have a voice that iconic. He defines the franchise in that way just as much as Sydney does. Yeah, and I think a lot about how they deliberately never brought Roger Jackson around on set. Because uh, they're like, well, you want to hear that voice for the first time over the phone. You want to feel that shiver of fear down your spine when like that you slide right down into it and you have to sit in it and you're like oh what's this about mm. so good i love the popcorn as like mm-hmm. the bomb that's gonna go off yeah. there's a thing wes craven does where he keeps the tv that she's gonna watch yeah. on the vcr channel the blue screen and it's just that blue the blue screen so to make you feel like you're moving into a movie yeah. and it's yeah so good. I love anachronistic technologies. I can't help it, you know. So like a yeah, VCR no, I, um here. Even the Jiffy Pop popcorn. The real deal. Uh, fire hazard apparently. <laughs> oh, True. Yeah. But this is. I want to talk about how this is a stew mutcher kill. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's. It's hard to tell because like 
it obviously makes the most sense motive-wise, right? Because afterwards, they drop the line that Stu was dating Casey until she dumped him for Steve, mm-hmm. who is also killed in this scene. And uh, I love the moment yes. where you can see him on the patio out the window before he's been revealed. Yeah. But also, it's like... Steve sort of seems like nothing, so yeah, I don't know if I feel that sorry He's got him. a Letterman's jacket. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> But then uh, Stu's, like, alibi is that he was with Tatum hooking up all night, which is, like, they're teenagers. How long is that going to take? Right. But also, so I don't know. But then was it both of them? Because there's a lot of, like, back and forth. But then I guess it's, like, who does she see? Yeah, I don't remember for sure if it was confirmed which one of them it was. I think Stu definitely killed Steve. And, again, motive-wise, that would make a lot of sense. True. Now that you say it, having the two of them does make that, I think, the most, Realistic, yeah. not to drop realism into this movie, <laughs> but so a brutal scene though, a very dramatic choice to kill off your supposed like mm-hmm. marketed star mm-hmm. in the first fifteen minutes, oh. and also when her parents get home and they see yeah. everything that's happened. Oh, God. Yeah. I think oh. Green and Ghostface in particular is so deeply funny to me because of like it's a bit of a goof now, but the whole what's your favorite scary movie is a iconic. And B, I just don't know if Ghostface would be prepared if they asked me that question. Because I do think <laughs> what's happening there is I'm info-dumping for an hour and they're like, I, mm, I d- okay. I, can you just move to the door? <laughs> really quickly, really quickly, can you please just close the door? I have something I was going to do and it's like, oh, I was, I was telling you about Titan and I was going to talk about Hellraiser and this is going to come up and they're like, oh, uh, can you stop? Click right on the line. <laughs> the power of ADHD. Now that I think about it, you both, like, getting me on this podcast, you asked me, what's your favorite sure scary movie? And I was like, hmm. So. <laughs> Surprise. It's a bit of a goof now, too, but the fact that Ghostface isn't an elegant oh, yeah. killer. I love when Ghostface gets his shit wrong. Oh I think it's so funny. It finally clicked today that I was like, because it's like, love how goofy and like gangly is. But then I was like, oh, that's the stew yeah. mm-hmm. in him. Because that's like Stu's whole thing. So it's like, of course he would be kind of flamboyant yeah. and just like hamming it up as like this, like Halloween costume killer. Like it's literally oh, he like, loves it. like something from a five and done. Yeah, like yeah. I feel like he probably pitched it to Billy, uh-huh. if anything. So they go outside and they, they see Katie strung up from a tree. And then we cut to Sydney in her room, like we were talking about. And then Billy Loomis, Skeet Ulrich, crawls into her window. What a fucking creep. Yeah, immediately. She's the Melissa Etheridge. <laughs> I just don't think that's what you meant. <laughs> You're so right. If a man crawled through my window, firstly, I would have questions. Secondly, what a red flag. I'd be like, get out, use the door, what's wrong with you? Billy Loomis, the living red flag. Really? <laughs> so true. Because, like, he comes over and he says, I was watching TV, I saw The Exorcist, <laughs> and it made me think of you. Well, Don't Fear Don't the Reaper fear the is Reaper. playing on the soundtrack. I think my partner said that's like, was written in the script. That, of like, course Don't Fear it the was. Reaper is playing. Yeah. This soundtrack is so good. We could talk about it throughout, but it's... This soundtrack is so good. Yeah, and just well... Any yeah. song use ever be as iconic as that red right hand sting. So like, oh, I think about it all the time. Uh, when it plays the first time and it's on Jewish slamming the car door shut, I'm like, yes. that's cinema, baby. 
let's go. I do think they kind of overplay it a bit to two and three. Yeah. yeah. But it comes back strong in five. Oh, yeah. Ugh, what a banger oh, song yeah. also. Uh, Incredible. So good. Also whisper to a scream. Yeah. The whole soundtrack. Just yeah. so good. Probably the best one on there. And uh the closing credit song is what they mm-hmm. use that for, but so good. I mean, the score, too, is just incredible. Mm-hmm. That Marco Beltrami score. So many stings. <laughs> Every single moment, just, like, to put you on edge. Like, really underlying, is like, everyone's a suspect. Yeah. Bro, are you the killer? They're playing your theme, but in a minor key. <laughs> and right away, like, just, I feel like that comparison of Sydney to The Exorcist, which is funny, because Linda Blair also pops up as a reporter. Yes. I feel like it's a very cool uh-huh. thing, because... The Exorcist stands out as kind of like a rejection of traditional female roles and ways to act. Mm -hmm. Uh, And seeing that as, I know it's very tertiary, but just like seeing that as an offhand comment describing Sydney, even if it's not in the right context with Billy's conversation, I think that is interesting in relation to like how she might identify with her sexuality. Mm -hmm. And also like he's right in a way. He's just, not thinking about it correctly he's like oh it reminds me of you and it's like yeah it reminds you of her for all the wrong reasons but you're not wrong to think about her like because he goes on about like how they've become like edited for television and you're like shut up billy i hate you shut the fuck (laughs) up billy loomis but it's like well no the the correct comparison here is that like you say she's rejecting these like standard female roles and he is underestimating her in a way that really comes back to bite him and oh god is it great he's such a creep because he Mm -hmm. like convinces her to make out and then he immediately tries to go beyond her boundaries and then while crawling out the window again is like oh and about the sex stuff i was only kidding and you're like shut up mostly i'll kick you out that window man no pressure Uh, does not deserve sydney prescott and her pg-13 relationship (laughs) But, you know, from there, we learn about the killing of Casey Becker and Steve Orth that is now spreading through the community. We also find out that her dad is leaving on a trip, which is going to be the big red flag for him. Mm. I love that Randy is right, that his body comes popping out in the third reel. But we meet Rose McGowan, who is Tatum. Uh, I love Tatum. Tatum, my queen. She's so good. That whole exchange. She sat next to me in English class. Not anymore. (laughs) You're like, wow, so sympathetic. God. Like, not wrong, but God. These kids, these dirtbag <laughs> teens, I just love them. There's this whole through line of, like, disaffective youth in Scream, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, the sheriff says, you know, mm-hmm. a million years ago, I would have said he wouldn't have done it. These kids today, I don't know. You see the way that they're kind of, like, trying to reach out. But, you know, they're doing it through this ironic detachment. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you get that scene of them all sitting around the fountain describing how to gut Casey while Principal Hembry is trying to reach them but can't effectively do it. He's like ineffective adults in leadership and and unavailable adults. Such a weird role. Remember your principal loves you after he like touches Sydney on the chin gets like the knowing like suspicious look from the sheriff. And it's just like, what yeah. is happening in this school? What is I happening in Woodsboro? Whole, like, it's like, again, only the barest shadows yeah. of this, like, haunted. Right. <laughs> it kind of, like, it just, it hints at 
the shadows and the muck and the secrets that could be Mm -hmm. in a place like Woodsboro. But it's also played humorously. Mm -hmm. But you seeing it now, seeing it then, everybody was like, "Mm, Mm hmm, Hembry. Yeah, like, it's something about, like, the way he, like, reaches out and, like, pats it. I'm like, don't touch her. Stay away from her. That's weird. Why are you doing that? Yeah. No. And this is where we meet all the characters. So we've got Matthew Lillard yeah. as Stu. Oh Again, we have Skeet Ulrich as Billy Loomis. We have Rose McGowan as Tatum. We have Jamie Candy as Randy. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of like the little click for their high school, which Randy is the only one who's really out of sorts there. You know, he's the fifth wheel. Which I'm sure it also says in the script. Yeah. He's, just, he's just the fifth wheel. Yeah, their friend, Randy. <laughs> like, okay. Who's doing Jerry Lewis impressions in the 1990s. Oh. I can't say I'm the biggest fan of no. uh, Randy and this whole thing, and I think that's by design, but it's also kind of like when you're next to Matthew and Lillard, who's like serving the most and then more. Did so much in this film, and some might say too much, but I think it was just oh my God, it's perfect. Jimmy Candy was doing yeah. too much. <laughs> and then Skeet Ulrich acting as Afhoff, just like so giving the game away because Stu can't keep his mouth like his like eyes bugging out the whole time and like his veins he's like because they're teenagers they're idiots he's like can you stop you're making us so weirdo Mm -hmm. and then i love a little scene where somebody just kind of like gets home and settles into their home which is what sydney does back at her house which completely empty and we get another call to dogs barking like, anytime a dog barks and screams, mm. it's not a good sign. We see it with Casey Becker. We see it with oh. Sydney here. It comes up again in a couple of the other sequels. But it's uh, it's a fun scene where she gets home and she hears that. And she looks over the great expanse of Woodsboro. And then she goes in and locks the door. Yeah. It's interesting how, like, yeah, spread out everything is. They have the little town square, which seems like it's pretty close to the high school. But then everyone else just lives, like, so... Yeah far yeah. away from each other. I love that scene, like, when Sydney gets that call from Ghostface, and she's on the phone with Tatum first, and, like, that we kind of get, like, like you are saying about the, that sort of ironic detachment from it, because that's when Tatum goes, don't worry, Casey and Steve didn't bite it till way after 10, <laughs> and it's like, thank you, Tatum, that didn't help at all, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that's not reassuring. It's a fun extrapolation of the idea that there are rules, yeah. right? Like, they're immediately already looking for something like that. Then Sydney gets that phone call from Ghostface and just does not give a fuck. Like, she actually just does not give a fuck at all. <laughs> and I respect it so much. Yeah, picking her nose. This is the part where it's like, it's sending up slashers at the same time that mm-hmm. it's honoring them and doing homages to them. Yeah, it's so fun the way it, yeah, it's sending up and playing with all these tropes and it's like discussing them, why they're stupid. It's like Sydney's like, yeah, I'm not going to run upstairs like all these idiot girls. But then the movie finds ways to make it, like force them to yeah. do it. It forces her to run upstairs. Yeah, like, well, now you've done it, Sydney. It's so... easy to say that from the audience, yeah. but here's how we can like make this work. And it's just like so smart, so fun. And um, I love how they did the door mm-hmm. thing earlier. It's uh, the part where he's like, oh, well, I'm on your front porch. And she's like, okay, and goes out like, are you? I don't see you. What are you going to do? <laughs> I'm like, I just, I love her, like, gall. She's like, fuck you. No, you're not. Out of my face with that. Also, to note, right before she fell asleep and wakes up to that call from Ghostface mm-hmm. is when we first see the description of what happened to her mother, Maureen Prescott. Yeah. And I think this is just so important for the movie. So mm-hmm. Maureen was 
supposedly raped and definitely murdered. Cotton Weary is the supposed killer and is on death row, and they're talking about Sydney's testimony in it. So in the narrative of this film, I feel like kind of what thematically comes around is like Sydney overcoming the projected misogyny and abusive tactics that are heaped on to Maureen and her mother. Yeah. And so she has to transform that trauma. And it's amazing that like all this stuff is going on. People are being like just so catty to Sydney. And it's been a year a year? A year. And they're like, get over it, Sydney. Yes, it's like, it's like unbelievable. I know. And she absorbs all that. She's like totally gaslit. Be like, yeah, it's my fault. My PTSD is causing everybody problems. It's been a year. But that ties into what I was thinking about the disaffected teens thing. She's the only one who's mm-hmm. like been touched by death, which is like what makes her the perfect because everybody else is such an abstract thing. It's just like, oh, whatever, Casey just like got slaughtered. And after they have that conversation, they show the scene in the classroom. Sid looks over yeah. at the empty chair next to As her. As the most like aware of Casey that sat. So it's like she understands that this is real everybody else is like yeah this is what's on in movies it's cool even all the way to Stu and billy trying to set up their story they don't understand the intensity of that the pain of that they're still separated Mm -hmm. at least certainly Stu is Mm -hmm. but they push sydney into the same tropes like you're saying you know running up the stairs and do we think this is a billy attack i mean because he's yeah there on the scene like, this is where he, like, runs in the classic scream uh-huh. running into the doorway after Ghostface disappears. I think so. it probably is, because it's probably easy for him to, like, get out of the house, haul it off, climb in her window again. And the cops find the costume, yeah. so he obviously just ditched it really yeah, quickly. Yeah, because for some reason that I have never in my life understood, Dewey stood at that door holding that mask in front of his face. I'm like, why are you holding it there? <laughs> what are you doing? All right. Now we come to Dewey. Uh, Dewey Riley. <laughs> oh. Dewey Riley, played by David Arquette, is a small town deputy of Woodsboro and all around baby boy. So he is arriving at the house because I, did Sydney Sydney use the voiceover chat to call nine one one? Which again, so mm-hmm. of the time as well. Like, look at her. Really smart. She's clever. That door trick. I I love that fucking door in Sydney's room where the closet door opens and if you try to open the bedroom door, it will jam them. And how they couldn't find any house with that, and so they had to make it. So good though. So good. Oh my god, that happens with my cabinet mm. doors all the time in the kitchen. It was. <laughs> Now I just, like, think about Scream. Uh, theoretically, it fully could happen with my room, because that's my, the door into my room, that's my cupboard door. Ah. You could fully... You know what to do in a situation, I, should it arrive. If I ever get ghost-faced... Hang up an Indigo Girls <laughs> that's, poster. That is what I the sign. <laughs> so Dewey takes her to the station, Tatum follows, and we get Gail Weathers. Uh, she was introduced a little oh. bit earlier, but now we, we get the real logline of Gail Weathers, where she... Sucks. Yeah, she sucks. It's Courtney Cox playing a really selfish and highly motivated small town reporter for Top Story. Oh, Gail. Oh, Gail. She's upwardly motivated. Yes. She's seeing that glass ceiling. She is breaking it and everyone on the way down. Yeah. In a lime green pantsuit. It could be worse. It could be worse. It could be those stupid bangs she gets. Her fashion, I mean, like, the costume designer for this movie is Cynthia Bergstrom, and I just want to give uh, major flowers Mm -hmm. to her for Gail alone. 
I read that um, a lot of Tatum's fashions were brought in by uh, Rose yeah, McGowan. That so well, like I think completely from perfect. what I read, Rose McGowan had a strop because they tried to put her in denim overalls. And they were like, oh, they're very now. Oh, God, and she no. was like, they're very never. And then brought her own things. She's literally, she's got like the optical illusion pants. She drives like a vintage, yeah. like red Volkswagen Beetle, the kind of thing I had like posters of in my room in 1997. Yeah. What I'm saying is like she embodies the coolness of this movie that I was getting at. 100%. Like the Tatum Stew couple is really like <laughs> the shining star. More than Billy and Sid, even though they're yeah. technically, like, the main characters. Well, that's where you get to have fun, exactly. right? Like, Billy and Sydney are great characters, love the narrative, everything about it, but Stu and Tatum are just, you want to have fun with them. You want to go to that house party. Not that house party, but another house party <laughs> that Tatum threw. A different with. one. But I also love what Tatum brings as Dewey's sister to, like, help undermine his, Immediately like, feeble bullying him. establishing his authority. Where he's just like, Tatum, mom said when I'm wearing the uniform, I'm a man of the law. So embarrassed for you. I think brings a lot of weight to like earlier when Sydney asked Tatum, like, oh, do they know who did it? And Tatum's like, they're fucking clueless. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) She is pretty up on it. Also, shout out while we're talking about costuming to that incredible top story jacket. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That logo. Let's bring that back, marketing team. But we get a little interrogation <laughs> yeah. by Sheriff Burke and basically establishing, like, why did you have a cell phone? Yeah. And I think that it's really cool that in, like, the first 30 minutes, it's just like, okay, cell phones are a modern issue. Mm-hmm. Like, like, all right, Karen, mm-hmm. when did you get your first cell phone? I waited. I resisted for a long time. So it wasn't until I was in college around, like, 2004 or 5. You did hold out. So I like held off. But people had them a a bit earlier, but certainly not at that time. I got my first one around 2000 or so, and it was just a brick that you only had T9 Mm -hmm. texting. But at that point, it was becoming a ubiquitous part of culture. I see Beck smiling over there. I'm very distinctly keeping my mouth shut. (laughs) I'm about to say a sentence that you're all gonna hate. Bring me to dust. Crumble <laughs> me. I got my first phone, I think, when I was, oh god, eight or nine. But here's the kicker. Which would have been about 2008. <laughs> oh, I love it. You make me feel alive for a little longer. <laughs> Every time. Mine was a bright pink Samsung flip phone. Classic. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. We should bring them back. Dramatic flip phones. You know, you can slam them shut. So we got our first phones not too far yeah. apart from each other. Uh, I think we should bring back the little phone charms you can attach. Like the little strings. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I miss them. But to what I was saying is that cell phones were becoming ubiquitous. They were a thing that people had to answer for in screenplays and scripts. Mm-hmm. And so it's fun to see that come up. And you get that little bit with Tatum where she's undermining Dewey's authority before they go back to the Riley house. Oh, but not before we get to see Sydney and Gail meet. So they go out the back, and of course, being a highly motivated and resourceful reporter, so does Gail Weathers and Kevin. RIP, Kevin, you were great. They basically bombard Sydney, and then they have the confrontation about the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. How's the book? It's going to be out in the fall. I'll buy a copy. I'll send you one. Pow, Sydney, super bitch. Boom. <laughs> Smacks her in the face. 
bitch went down. Bitch went down. I love how enthusiastic Tatum is about that, and it's so it's so it's cool so to funny. see her again in like that cute interior world where she doesn't have to be yeah. tough as nails or present that. Yeah. Because, like, I don't know if we said, I assume people who are listening will know, but Gail is writing the book about Sydney's mother being murdered and about Cotton Weary. And that's, you know, a sensitive subject for Sid who has PTSD and it's only been a year. Side note, what publisher is Gail with that this book is coming out with, like, less than oh a two-year turnaround? You know, you know the bidding war was out In, of pocket. Absolutely. Unhinged. But yeah, I just, I love that suddenly just clocks her in the face, right in the jaw, no hesitation. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Tatum just like, God, I loved it. There, uh, that scene when they're in the room and like that song, I think it's Artificial World is playing. It's like this really kind of like spooky. It keeps getting stuck in my head yeah. every time I watch it. That scene, very like airy and so cool. I love that you see all these kids parents except for notably Stu, which i think we can come back to mm-hmm. later but i did want to say that um the scene between gail and uh sid here is so good because it again highlights like kevin williamson's like mastery at this yes even like later scream movies are kind of clumsy with their exposition people will just say what you need to know mm-hmm. but this scene in particular is so good at naturally explaining what is the background between these two characters bringing you up you heard a little bit about the news story about maureen prescott but this is like Mm -hmm. adds further context like explains more of like what sid's going through in this very natural and believable back and forth and they have another scene later when um Sid becomes a bit more suspicious of billy and is starting to doubt whether there's a connection or not between her mother's murder and what's happening right now. So just like, I mean, gay icon. Gay icon. I just think as well, there's something so tight in this scene where you don't really get the full story about Gail's book and everything. You get enough sort of hints that you can sort of put it together that it's about Sydney's mother and whatever. But in particular, that line where Tatum's trying to pull Sydney away and Sydney goes, it's okay, Tatum, she's just doing her job right Gail and you're like oh there is a lot of better Mm. history there and that like one little phrase for sure and just because his writing is so sharp on that you get to deliver exposition really naturally through the news reports but then like you get to the dynamic to the heart of their relationship and why they've got beef Mm -hmm. but Sydney of course is not safe wherever she goes under the plan of Sue and Billy so she gets a call and there's that very cute moment where Dewey runs out and is Boxer's unaware of the situation just with his little service pistol. Aiming his gun everywhere. Like, <laughs> you are not the man that. to be doing that. No. I wonder what Mrs. Riley, like, what, like, Ghostface was like on the phone with her. Was he, like, putting on a nice voice to be, like, is, Perfectly polite. is Sydney there? <laughs> Probably so, because, like, the character of Ghostface in all its different iterations for whoever's playing the killer is always one of those people who gets through the door, right? Yeah. They're able to kind of bypass those defenses. Yeah. But we get Billy out of jail next day at school, and they have that god-awful conversation where you understand that Billy Loomis is one of the worst boyfriends you could have. Yeah. God. He sucks so bad. What is there to say? What a what a piece of shit. Yeah, because this is when it it's when he's like, oh, you should get over it, though. And it's like, I hate you. It's been a year. 
Yeah. About to be the anniversary yeah. of her mother's death. Yeah. But he understands because his mom left his cheating dad. <sighs> so it's like the same thing. When they do stab in Scream 2, they have this scene. They've got Luke Wilson it's, playing Billy. It's so, so funny. good. When he does this stupid line, which is like the dialogue, it's like pretty taken exactly from this scene, but just like at Luke Wilson so and Tori Spelling. Which, like, they make the joke that, like, oh, yeah, if they made a movie of this, they'd probably get Tori Spelling yeah, to play me. It's like, and then Tori Spelling was like, hey, I'm going to shoot my shot. Yeah. It said they'd be like, oh, knowing my luck, they'd cast Tori Spelling. And Tori Spelling's like, I think that's funny. I'll do it. We get that really intimidating scene with Hembry that's a red flag. Mm-hmm. And he's got those mm-hmm. so sleek, sharp scissors. I know. And for why? Like, why is everyone being so weird? Those have to thing? be ribbon-cutting scissors, right? Like, Great yeah. foley on those, just like the oh, yeah. slicing noise. The foley art in this movie is incredible. I love when you hear Ghostface cleaning off the knife, which is another mm-hmm. little trademark that I think is very cool in a ritualistic fashion. Yeah. But he, you know, throws two students out for imitating Ghostface. And then we get a scene of Sydney in the bathrooms hearing more rumor mill stuff oh. about her mother and then being attacked by Ghostface. I love this scene. I call it the Delia's catalog scene. <laughs> <laughs> Again, like, I'm just obsessed with the these outfits. Like, her friend with the short hair. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, her little performance in the mirror is so good. Uh-huh. But, yeah, like, laying the foundations like, oh, yeah, maybe it is. Sydney, who knows? I mean, we know that it's not watching the movie, but just no like one else does. With and... the Hembry scene, uh-huh. it's just like every single person is like being set mm-hmm. up. I think that this scene is really cool because it plays to an article that came out a couple of months ago by Sarah Wagoner for Anatomy of a Scream, mm-hmm. and it talked about how you can look at DARVO tactics, which stand for deny, attack, and reverse victim offender so that is a common abuse tactic in which you try to frame the victim as the real perpetrator as the real aggressor and they talk about through this movie specifically is that people keep trying to frame sydney's mother as the real monster of the movie and sydney as someone who is taking on her Mm -hmm. legacy and her scarlet Mm -hmm. letter and quite literally that is what billy is trying to do to her it's a framer. I did look over at my copy of Blaming the Victim during the scene and <laughs> had some feelings. She's like, hmm, hmm. Yeah, Sydney's mother is so interesting. I was really keying in this last rewatch, the scene when Sydney and Tatum kind of sit down and they're trying to like make sense of everything. And Tatum's like, I think your mom was just a really unhappy woman. Mm-hmm. And that feels so potent, but I was also sort of like, clocking it i don't know i was feeling it was feeding into my larger like sydney prescott lesbian mm-hmm. thing like mm-hmm. they were talking about sydney's mom but they were also talking about sydney it's like sydney yeah. i think there's something that you're not addressing sydney i think you should and just try and kiss a girl leave it up to your best friend and- so. Yeah. See how it goes for you. I think you'd be happy. I also really like how gentle Tatum is with her in that scene. Like it's it's like mm-hmm. saying, well, you know, mm-hmm. rumors have been out there longer than the murder was out there. You can't prove rumors. Also, this is the same girl who knows when to catch Tom Cruise's penis in uh, in all the right moves. all the right moves. <laughs> yeah. But before Sydney gets out of school, she's attacked in the restroom, and she says afterwards that it was him. I could tell, but I'm not 
entirely sure if that was Billy or Stu. I mean, I could buy it being Billy because right after that, we get the scene where they cancel classes, Mm -hmm. Henry gets murdered, and then they make the play for the party. So Stu is out there for the party, but we don't see Billy again until later. Yeah, I think it could have been. I just think it's like that shot where the boots step down. Oh, me too. Like the camera's low and you can just see like underneath the door and those two boots like lower down. You're like, oh, here we go. Let's get into it. And Sydney is right there. She's on it. And yeah, Yeah. she's like, gotta go. She's so good. Never done a thing wrong. The mm-hmm. Hembry kill mm-hmm. is it's pretty fun, and it was a kill that was added in the script later yeah. on, which it took me until maybe a year or two ago to realize that they kill him as a distraction to get people away from the house. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So another thing I love about the script is where so many of these little things keep flopping out, and then they get dragged into like the final scene, so you just have all these obstacles that you're tripping over, it's so and it's just good. Like, really smart. I like that they do the overt thing with the video store. Like, just have it out in the open because, I don't know, it feels like in the vein of movies like Single, where you're just watching people do their jobs. It's also very funny when he's talking about, like, all the things you can expect out of a killer, and then, like, that woman turns up and looks at him and then walks away. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Very funny. I do sometimes feel like that's how customers at my job feel listening to me talk about anything. They must just overhear parts of conversations and just be like, okay, <laughs> sure, I guess. That's a great background player. Yeah, all the background actors on that were. Yeah. Oh, that no. intense moment where Billy and Stu pin Randy in. We're like, well, why don't we know you're the killer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's the fact he's like, yeah, you're right. I'm first to admit it. I would, if this was a scary movie, I would be a suspect. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, yeah. probably not. It's funny you were bringing up like singles in those kind of movies because they're standing in front of a clerk's poster for like a lot of that scene, yeah. which is like epitomizes that whole thing. But this was the scene when I was sort of preparing for recording this episode where Randy throughout the movie keeps going like watch prom night and they like evoke it so it's like okay fine let's watch prom night and it's like all the DNA for this movie is splattered through there like the creepy phone calls the like friend group even like the killer's like mask in that movie is the same like sort of glittery black material that Ghostface's robes are. I love that Ghostface's robes are glittery. All right, I see what you're doing. It's funny. Like I do really, really enjoy them putting on Halloween, but I'm surprised that they didn't watch Prom Night at the end after telegraphing that so hard. Yeah. Because they had it at the party. They had it at the party. Totally. And then I suppose there's a whole bunch of other references to Halloween that I guess it could have went either way. But also like going back. To watch Prom Night really underscores like what a different sort of like paradigm shift Scream is. And it's so hard to think about like Scream from a pre-Scream context (laughs) because it's like they're talking about these schlocky, badly made movies that they love. But then Scream is like so slick and well put together and like mass appeal and mainstream. And it's like, yeah. You don't really get it until you're, like, putting them up next to each other. Even Halloween, mm-hmm. like, several decades earlier. It's a whole different vision, you know? Like like you're saying, it's slicker, it's sleeker, yeah. it's cooler, it's sexier, it's younger. <laughs> you know, it's, like, all that appeal there that did push into a wide range of films after that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. 
But we get that scene where Red Right Hand kicks in and mm. all the curfews are shutting down and Tatum and Sydney uh, go to the store. Go to the freezer section to talk the about. The freezer section. Really? To the yeah. icebox? <laughs> Come on, and they're talking about her aversion to having sex with Billy. And she's taking it as it's her fault. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, fuck Billy Loomis. He's being no. so patient with me. We Who would deal her. with a girlfriend who's sexually anorexic? No. And this is right after the, in the video store scene, they show him. He's just like chatting up these random girls. Yeah, and that's like, like, fuck you. These boys. <laughs> these oh, yeah. boys. Ugh. But she says... Anytime he touches me, I just go cold. And I'm like, there's a reason, okay? Yeah. You want to have romance. Yeah. You want to be close to someone. You just, you don't want a man. Yeah, That's true. Certainly not this man. Like, I love you. I love that you're on your journey, but you're going to have some realizations in a bit. The other really funny beat that comes from this, like, intercut set of scenes is the scene where Sheriff Burke and Dewey are discussing Sydney's father and, like, tracking the phone and getting a hold of him and just got... Sheriff Burt taking a drag off a cigarette and then Dewey like biting into his ice cream and they're doing it blow for blow. And he's like kind of embarrassed because he's like, oh, I know this isn't as cool as smoking. So he's like hesitant to like get in there. It's almost like he waits till the sheriff leaves before he like starts like pressing his lips into the ice cream cone. It's also probably like the last place that you get a moment where (laughs) you suspect that Dewey might be the killer. Because from then yeah. on, he's sort of in range of people. He's just such a little goof. He just can't. He's not built that way. No. But finally, we come to the house party. Yeah. It's deeply funny to me that when you get to, like, sex and you're sort of in modern times and you've moved to a city, it's like, oh, this is happening in, like, <laughs> two studio flats. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, great, yeah, that's it. <laughs> there we go. There's the house in crisis, and folks. And talk about shooting this scene, which I think took place over, like, three weeks. Yeah. I know that the cast and crew got, like, t-shirts made because it was, like, scene 118, and it was, like, we survived scene 118. The (laughs) cast and the crew all rented motel rooms outside Mm -hmm. of the area where the house was. They basically lived there throughout the entire shoot, and it was all done at night. So, like, Nev Campbell would come in, they would put on the previously bloodied costume and just dampen it a bit. And then she would go right back to work, and then she would leave and go film Party of Five. Courtney Cox and David Arquette met on the set, and they started their romance. And so everyone described it as more of a summer camp experience. So let's get into it. So we start with them entering the Marcher house. Everett's watching Halloween. Billy is not present. Dewey's outside, and Gail shows up. Mm -hmm. And Dewey finds a way into the party as security and takes Gail with him. You know, just a bunch of kids cutting it loose, as Dewey says. 25-year-olds playing 18-year-olds <laughs> with a 30-year-old playing a 25-year-old. Perfect. And you get that great line from Tatum about him taking his media muff with him. Oh, that's good. <laughs> She's such a little so bitch. Um, I love her. But yeah, I think it's, like, important. It kind of gets blown by pretty fast, but I think Tatum basically warned Billy to, like, clear Mm -hmm. which kind of like explains what happens to tatum to me because there's not really a clear reason besides them slipping into their nihilistic like blood fury because you're right because like he doesn't have a motivation besides it's just pissed you're gonna tell me to stay away from my girlfriend my my girlfriend's but he always says i want my girlfriend back he's so possessive yeah and he needs her out of the way you see throughout like especially in the video store scene just how like 
intimidating like Billy and Stu are and how they like throw their like weight around and try and like you know force people it's like how dare you like tell me no or anything which is this whole like entitled teen boy like white teen boy thing that just underpins the whole thing of it and I think I just keep going back to how this is such like a Weinstein project too and I feel like Billy's whole ethos and like MO is so Weinstein it's really interesting too when they get to the third one that they tackle sex abuse in Hollywood for a movie produced Mm -hmm. by the epitome of sexual abusers in Hollywood it is just sort of a entitlement to Billy for all these things like he didn't get his mother his mother and father broke up you don't do that to me right and he does push his way into the party and he first kills Tatum because that's a Billy kill yeah because Stu was off on the couch yeah but Stu sends her in to get the beer so it's like they're clearly in communication T9 texting Mm -hmm. and Tatum doesn't go down without a fight this is a shot I love in this movie is whenever a character opens a closed fridge because it's getting a cut and then a white transition for free. Yes. yes. <laughs> and Tatum gets the beers and Ghostface comes in and locks the door. And after the chase starts, she busts his ass like four or five beer bottles. Then unfortunately gets mangled mm-hmm. in the dog door. She does though also get that little bit of dialogue that went so viral on TikTok last year around oh, yeah. Halloween. Oh, you want to play Psycho Killer? Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. And she's just Icon. taking the pass, and I love oh, her. good. Giving him his name. Yeah. Yes, because like. on the costume, you see that it's labeled as Father Death. Not as Father. That's Ghostface right there. Oh, yeah. But before they can really spot Tatum's body, that's when Billy comes in, having dumped his cloak, and he goes to talk to Sydney, and they fuck. Mm-hmm. She loses... Her virginity, which in the rules of slashers, a virgin survived to be the final girl, you know, setting out the rules. And once she has broken them, then it goes back to the thing again, like Drew Barrymore, where anyone could die, right? Yeah. Oh, that scene where they just get done having sex. So far apart. It's so sad. It's just like everything. It's really, it's so funny because Billy and Stu even are so monstrous but the actors like Skeet Ulrich and Matthew Lillard are like so amazing baby boy. Baby boy. Like, yeah it's just like yeah it's and it's just one of those things that's like so fun about this like genre or whatever flashers it's just like when you have the performances to just like make you fall in love that reaction that he gives when she's talking about why can't i be in a mech ryan or a good porno you see it in his eye there's a moment uh-huh. of realization his vein is like popping out of his yeah he's like Stu is gonna come in in like 10 minutes i've got the time i can do this oh yeah that's a good point because they set it up obviously but yeah i hadn't considered he probably wasn't expecting that yeah. to happen so they were just gonna Ah, interesting. Teenagers. It's right. also the time when Gail and Dewey go to investigate a crash car down the road, and they get the call about Principal Hembry. Which, that's when they realize there's the delay, right? The 30-second the delay, because Kevin looks out from the van and sees all the kids coming up. Uh-huh. Almost runs down Dewey and Gail. A kiss between uh, Dewey and Gail. They are Love very the chemistry is there. Like, when she turns her head, and it's like, is that what you're looking for? And he just, like, all my life. <laughs> what an adorable goof. 
totally unrelatable. Like that would ever happen to somebody, mm-hmm. right? Uh, certainly never happened to me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so Dewey and Gail head back, and that's when Billy is stabbed, the fake stab by Stu, and plays possum, and sends the main final chase sequence into action. It just, like, keeps pausing, because I'm just like, oh, it's like, I'm just so in awe. Like, what do you say? It's, like, so great. Sid is so capable from the beginning. Just, like, so many, like, kicks off of her when she's down. She's maybe Yeah, and she's a dancer. You know, she's ready for the physicality of that role, and she delivers it. And, again, she falls into the tropes. She's being pushed into this narrative that Ghostface has made, makes it to the attic, and gets out the window. Yeah. And she falls on a boat. I know. That's poor girl. She's falling from every high place she can. Uh, but when she gets away from ghost faces, when she sees Tatum's body, and like I think like uh, Rachel was saying, it's a much stronger reaction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ghostface stalks Randy, and we also get that played out with Sydney, who has fled the house, and Kevin in the news band as they're watching through that delay. Poor Kevin bites it as he goes to try to warn Randy. Because of the 30-second delay, Ghostface has made it out and split poor Kevin's throat. It's the fact that he remembers as soon as he gets out the van as well, and I'm like, you're close so... the door. He oh, is. Yeah. He's a good guy, though, because you can hear him say with his last dying breath, the door. Yeah. Yeah. Like, bless him. But and also, right before also... this, we get this great scene of uh, Jamie Kennedy in, like, a meta upon meta moment where he's watching Jamie Lee Curtis on the screen saying... Jamie, turn around. You know, there's someone right behind, behind you, you as Ghostface is yeah. walking up. So he's talking to Jamie Lee Curtis and Jamie Kennedy at the same time. Uh-huh. And it's like. It's just wonderfully stacked. I also where... like when they brought that up in. I think it's in Scream 5 with Randy's niece. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. it's back in Woodsboro. They can almost never escape this town. Well, it's in, it's in the same house. It's in yes. Stu's house. Yeah. So she's on the same sofa. I'm watching oh it happen and being like, you, you always look behind you. It's very funny. <laughs> we get Dewey being a bit of a hero when they come back because he sends Gail to the news van to try to make it safe. And he being the deputy runs in. And that's the last time that that man is going to run anywhere ever. Well, not quite. Well. <laughs> he does a lot of running in for. Okay, that's shouldn't. fair. That's fair. And jumping. <laughs> he went to a lot of yeah. physical therapy. You know, things can be... You know, work done. Uh, but Gail <laughs> tries to call for help, sees that Kevin's dead. Randy busts up on her and <laughs> she beats him with this blocky Saved by the Bell cell phone before mm-hmm. she sees all the blood from Kevin and does a hard right to throw him off before crashing. Gail Weather signing off? Not quite. Oh my God. I love you with her. She looked dead, man. <laughs> she still does. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> like, this woman is truly on death's door and they're just ragging on her and I'm like look kids are so vicious I have to give a shout out to her like her opalescent leather jacket oh yeah in this scene that like perfectly matches her bronze lipstick from an earlier scene yes that's just like the color stories Gail Weathers so like, loves Sid the color has story. like a consistent blue theme throughout. yeah that denim jacket pops up a lot and the the cat and mouse game with the car locks is mm. something that I thought was really fun. It's been in Kevin Williamson's like drawer forever until this movie came around. Oh, wow. Does anybody know how that works? 
Like he goes underneath the car and then he can operate the locks. Like I think it was because it's a mechanical part of the car. Okay. So I think he was able to like, but it doesn't make sense because it's within the door, right? The mechanism is yeah. all. It's a great, a great scene. scene, and it's followed up by a scene where Cindy's backing up, and Randy and Stu are both trying to plead their case, mm-hmm. and she's just like, "Fuck both of you," and oh. shuts the door. Shuts them up, which a reasonable response, I would say. In a heartbeat. This is why Sid is the main character. Yeah. It's also extremely funny that we get Billy coming back into the picture. He falls down a flight of stairs after he was supposedly terribly stabbed. And then he just gets up really easily and takes the gun like, yeah, yeah, trust me with this. Let's Randy in and gets that Anthony Perkins. Like, like that's what he was waiting for, that oh, ham. He's a messy bitch who lives for drama. Oh, shoots Randy. What a little oh, shit. Yeah. And in that last desperate moment, Stu walks in and Sydney's like, okay, well, maybe Stu will help me. And he pulls out the voice box. There's something so good. If you watch, like, Matthew Lillard's face in that scene. And he, like, holds that, like, fake concern right up until Sydney has her face, like, properly buried. And then you just see the, like, the glee and that, like, little unhinged smile start to spread as the hand comes up with the distorter. And you're like, oh, boy. Oh, boy, here we go. We've been talking about their acting throughout, but it doesn't even begin until this moment. Uh-huh. As they say, are you ready for act three? Uh, and we're on. With a bang. Yeah. And this is where we can kind of talk about the stew and Billy of it all. They're so gay. And what it reads to me, especially when you get the motive, right? Like mm-hmm. his father was having an affair with Maureen Prescott, Sydney's mother, and the knowledge of that affair drove his parents to split up and his mom to leave. Yeah. And you can see in that moment, Stu didn't know that. No, Stu was just there for fun. So a lot of times in any queer text or queer movie, like stuff is sublimated. And so I feel like a lot of Mm -hmm. that is here too. They don't have to be kissing to be queer. They don't have to have that to be gay. And I see that as like this longing to be as much beside and as much with Billy to whatever extent that is. And then Billy, you can tell, doesn't really care about Stu that much. No, doesn't give a fuck. To the extent, yeah, that he doesn't care about anyone. Yes. So I feel like because I definitely feel like watching this scene, the emotions flowing both ways. Obviously, there's a bit of like a unevenness to it. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, you know, like, do is the big spoon. <laughs> the yeah. curse of the tall. Yeah. <laughs> but that's why it's so great. He's just like lanking over so many people and like. He does the same thing with Billy as he does with, like, Tatum throughout the movie, like, like picking her up and, like, just, like, lanking over everybody and just, like, very physical and great. And, like, this is, like, what makes Matthew Lillard, like, such an MVP of this movie. And, like, ad-libbing his ass off, just coming up with so many things. It feels natural. Yeah. yeah. And just, yeah, that closeness that he has with Tatum, that closeness that he has with Billy, like, physically, like, you can tell... This is your classic slasher couple anxious avoidant attachment style situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even with like other, like when he sends Tatum to get a beer, the next time they show him, he's like basically licking whatever girl is like sitting next to him mm-hmm. in that scene. His tongue, let's give like a little moment of recognition to Matthew Lillard's tongue. Absolutely. Best boy grip. <laughs> oh, and you see how much fun he has with it too. Like he really is going camp with it from telling Sydney that your mother was no Sharon Stone oh to throwing up the zombie arms and leaning back 
back into the doorway before bringing out Sid's father, whose body does yeah. pop up in the third <laughs> reel. Thanks, Randy. Sure does. And they explain their plot that they're framing her dad as a psycho killer who snapped on the anniversary of his wife's death and killed everybody except for two survivors who were maimed. But this is when things go wrong for Billy and Stu. And it's also like out of everything, it's kind of like the we like their actual plan mm-hmm. is pretty weak. Their plan's terrible. Yeah. We see this again later in Scream Four. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. What a movie. That's that a little was. special for me, but yeah, totally. It like doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's so great. And really, I just want to get to the mutual stabbing session that they engage in here. Let's put it on the table. Which is so homoerotic. Uh, Something about these, two men these penetrating boys, each other with knives, you know? They have so much, like, misdirected, hormone-horny rage that's being weaponized against everybody around them and themselves. Yes. So... This is when nothing is enough. Nothing is enough. And, like, you look at the way that Billy plays with the knife and he's holding the knife. And he's, like, very Mm -hmm. almost seductive with it until it comes Mm -hmm. time to stab Stu. And he gets a little deep. They're not ready for that consequence of the violence they've been shielded from their entire lives. Even violence they're meeting out on other people. Well, yeah. Again, it's like that whole disaffected Yes, things like Sydney's the only one that really had the experience with it. She was the only one that mm. really was going to understand what they were doing, and I don't think they even fully understood what it would be like until, oops, now I'm in pain and this hurts and this is bad and you've gone too deep and I don't like how it's making me feel. And you're like, yeah. yeah. That moment when Billy asked him to give back yeah. the knife, you see that yeah. realization, you see that distrust yeah. come over them. Yeah, he knows. And he was right to say no, even though it didn't help him much in the end. Sure was. Because Billy slashes him up pretty bad, and he begins getting a little woozy and goes to get the gun. But the gun's missing. In the hands of top story in the field reporter, Gail Weathers. Our hero uh, returned. And, and that's when we get the, I thought she said she was dead. She looks it. And you're like, great, thank you. Thank you, boy. <laughs> it's a neat moment, too, because if the story is in a lot of ways about rewriting the narrative of Maureen Prescott, of Sydney, mm-hmm. then making that extension and offer to Sydney, like, what about the one where the reporter shows up that you thought was dead, comes in with a gun, and catches both of you two idiots and saves the day? It sure does. But yeah. she forgot one thing. Safety's on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Gail. Oh, Gail. Billy, like, fully launches her several launches feet her. back on probably, I don't know, like, wire into the banister pole. Yeah. It's so aggressive. Across the room, instantly knocked out. Which Sid uses as cover to get away and then takes the role of Ghostface for a moment to enact revenge and save oh, herself. It's so good. She gets into the costume. Like, yeah. how perfect is it's that? Just, it all it. comes full circle in the end. Billy just, again, showing that he can't take what he dishes out. Uh-huh. You know, he immediately, like, flips out. He's, like, mm-hmm. raging at her on the phone, runs through the house, cutting up pillows. Meanwhile, Stu is showing that he's playing it a little sly, <laughs> like, that he can talk well and that things are going wrong. But that the best ad-lib of the movie happens, in my opinion, right here. Oh, yeah. Did you really call the police? Yeah. My mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. 
I was actually trying to figure out, like, earlier in the movies, Deuce says something that's kind of like gibberish, like pig Latin. And I was like, what is that? Essentially saying, like, yay, school's out. But that led me to find, like, a YouTube video that pointed out that in this scene, there's a whiteboard right behind him that from his parents that say, sorry, we missed your birthday. We'll be home pretty soon. There's, like, cash oh, under the whatever. God, and it's like, Stu's parents. Brutal. Yeah. Stu's parents are the one set of parents in the whole movie out of, like, I think most of the people killed who we don't see their parents and just underlines more of his character. He's left completely alone. Yeah. He's got nothing but his, like, best friend who's, like, got this whole revenge scheme okay. going on. And he just and like, wants to be with his best friend. The best Murder besties. And so many fixed were born. <laughs> oh. Sydney bursts out while Billy is looking for her and uses an umbrella right into his chest. But of course, Stu isn't really dead, so he tries to make his final kill. And the two things that really stand out to me are one, again, projecting on the Sydney, I always had a thing for you, Sid. And then, I mean, the TV, come on, like killing yeah. with medium. It's good. While on the screen, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween has her knife like. Pointed yeah. outward uh-huh. so that it lands right on Stu's face and like it explodes and sparks and stuff, you know? Yeah. That's a great moment. I want to shout out. You are going to be able to get your own Valentine M. Smith designed out to get you t shirt that has that awesome CRT television oh, yeah. and a knife through it, along with a great mm-hmm. assorted stack of VHS and DVDs. You're going to be Including able to get that. Scream. Including Scream. Yeah. And you're going to be able to get that at T Public slash out dash two dash get dash you. That's the one. Emphasis on the slash. Oh, yeah. Always. Oh, but there goes Stu. And then Billy still trying to get Sydney, and she digs her fucking and... finger into his wound. Oh, it's so, so good. good. Penetrating him right back. Mm-hmm. Like, talk it. about reversal. Trading blows. <laughs> and finally, Gail shows up with the service revolver from Dewey. Yeah, shoots him first, and then they have the conversation about him coming back. Shoots him again, because not in my movie. Not in my movie. Oh, it's so good. But then they do the jump scare with Dad. So you still get it. Yeah. He comes tumbling out of that closet looking just completely beaten to shit, <laughs> bloody, still duct taped. Oh, Dad. Yeah. A rough day for him. We do find out that Dewey is alive. You know, he has made it through the night. Yeah. And that scene, the last scene of the film where Gil Weathers describes the shootings and the party and everything, they're filming that at sundown, actually, instead of sun up. So they are yeah. rushing to get this in such a oh. short amount of time. That this, I believe, is the first take. Oh. Wow. I just also love that um, the last, like, sort of, I watch everything in subtitles, but the last, like, subtitled line of this film is Gail being like, Liz, I have to get my close up. And I'm like, of course it is. Hi, Gail. <laughs> so good. She's the worst person in the world, and I love her dearly. And then we get birds fly, whisper to a scream. Yeah. And that is the yeah. first scream by Wes Craven. God, what a movie. What a film. What a movie. It's just so, it's so good. It's so much. Fun. I love and it. We even get another little jump scare thrown in there. Yeah. Like, feels like the movie just ends, and then it, there's like a little like frame of blah, ghost face. I really then... love it. Yeah. Before we get into questions, is there anything you all want to discuss or mention that we haven't gone over yet? Hmm. I remember as a kid always thinking the best line was when Stu goes like, Buka! 
with the gun. And like, I feel like watching it again, it's like not as mythic as maybe I built it up to be. I still but think it's pretty like, good. No, it's still very Add good. it to his little like weird things and like his movements and like, wow, what a performance. I know that the casting director for this film, when they were discussing this on the oral history, they said that, like, Jamie Kennedy, Skeet Ulrich, and Matthew Willard were three auditions that blew them away, and that they would say 10 across 25 years happened like that. But to have three in one movie was just a real kind of sign that things were shaping up right. I still think it slaps. It's really just, like... Like, all the Scream movies are great, like, in varying degrees, but it's just, like, the gap between one and whatever the next one would be is, like, so massive, I think, largely because of these performances and the amount of interiority that, like, everybody has, Mm -hmm. and just, like, it's so much. It was the total package, right? Because, like, Scream 2, I really love Scream 2, but it was rushed out the door. That baby Mm -hmm. needed to cook a little bit more. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a lot Scream of... was released around Christmas in 96, and yeah. then Scream 2 dropped like a year later, which is truly baffling to think about. Insane. Unbelievable. Yeah. But you can still see that like it holds up pretty well. Scream 3 was the first one that wasn't written by Williamson. You know, a lot of the voices, I feel, are pretty authentic to the characters as we've known them, but I, I do feel... I feel it suffers a lot for not having Williamson. Yeah, and also yeah. coming after a oh, lot man. of incidents with school shooters and stuff, I feel like that yeah. really colored the MPA's vision of that. For sure. Scream was never easy to get away no. with either. I will say about three that it's... End point for Sid is kind of like my ideal. Like mm-hmm. I love her just living on her own, out and like nowhere with her dog. Yeah. Like manning a crisis. Yeah, and, and being good at it. Yeah, I really like, like so that. Good at yeah. It. Like I love that. That's oh, like okay. my end game for Sid. And also, yeah. I do really appreciate in that movie where they give her the button on her arc that she leaves the gate open, that she has friends yeah. and family in her life, and that she doesn't set the alarm, yeah. and when a door opens. She leaves it there in peace in her own home, yeah. which is, uh, I think, a really cool place to leave her. Yeah. It was so nice seeing your dad again, played by the same actor. I was like, uh, I do think that there's a lot to Scream 3. Like, he gets kind of fairly reviled in some ways, but it still stands up in a lot of ways. And I feel like being on the bottom half of I, the Scream list is not a bad I place was to be. Yeah, and yeah, it's the one with like, Parker Posey. Oh, she's so good in that. She's like one of the best things in that movie. Being a bad scream movie is still being a pretty good movie <laughs> so like yeah i think three is my least favorite but also in the way of it's a scream movie and i still have fun with it mm-hmm. you know so i guess maybe now is a good time to get to the rest of our questions yeah go for it karen thank you again so yeah. much for joining us on this it's been a blast Thank you. We've got a couple more questions. We've actually hit a new ceiling on this. You can't beat Scream. Uh, As we are demonstrating, you can talk about Scream endlessly. So people have questions. So we're going to start up with Kathy G. Johnson. (laughs) The Scream expert. (laughs) Who do you think is the cutest? Also, what's your favorite needle drop and why is it birds fly whisper to a scream? Mm-hmm. Such good taste. Thank you, Kathy. It's Sydney. It's Sydney. I'm who I am. Sydney? I would treat her so much better than Billy. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I would make her understand. It would be fine. I'd take her to an Indigo Girls concert. I don't know. Oh like it, it would be great. She would love that. I know. <laughs> 
whoever dressed that bedroom knew the score. They knew. They knew what was up. I think I saw that they put that poster in Tatum's room and Rose McGowan was like, no, I don't think so. And I think that's probably correct. <laughs> that does sound right, because yeah. Tatum, that's not her style. Yeah. No. She's just who she is. I love it. She's like doesn't yeah. pretend to like be into the horror stuff. She's just like, whatever, I'm just here to be a little freak. Mm-hmm. And uh I completely agree <laughs> with both of you. Both super cute and definitely deserving of most cute. But just to add a different perspective, I gotta throw it into Matthew Lillard, you know, Stu Mocker, especially in that last scene. Such a cutie, like, face morphs from, like, scary, creepy guy to, like, little baby angel. You do not have to hand it to Stu Mocker. You don't. But But he has kids. (laughs) And as for favorite needle drop, I'm a sucker for a needle Mm -hmm. drop, right? I'm all in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not my favorite, but keeping to the genre, and the first thing I thought about was AM 180 from 28 Days Later mm. by Granddaddy, when that kicks in because it's such a bright, tinny, colorful song mm-hmm. to, you know, such a, a drab and dire situation as being in England. Deeply <laughs> real. This is not a safe space for England. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As a Scot, that's my right to say. <laughs> that's your right. But my favorite in this franchise is when they finally drop Red Right Hand and Scream 5 for that kill of Vince. Because mm-hmm. they overplay that a lot through 2 and 3. But just having it come on naturally in the car for that kill, I thought was just a, a real yeah. master yeah, stroke. It's like very fun. Red Right Hand and Gail Weathers have been in every Scream movie. I just think that's beautiful. That is nature healing. <laughs> The core identity of the Scream franchise is Red Right Hand and Gail Leathers. As it should be. As it should be. But what about you all? What are some of your favorite needle drops within this movie or horror movies or just in general? Bex, do you want to go or do you want me to take it? You go for it. I'm trying to think. I thought for Scream, but for other movies? Hmm. Hmm. I, I love the Youth in America song they play uh-huh. when, I think it's when they're going to the party or when they're leaving the party. I don't remember. But I also really love in the beginning, like when Casey is on the phone and I think she is, they're like well into the game and she's like cowering next to the beautiful blue screen and they're talking about Halloween and you can hear the little like tinkling Halloween theme playing like mixed into the score. And it's like very, very cool. That level of meta immersion and the way it syncs up is just Mm -hmm. so, Wes Craven is so good. I mean, pour one out, RIP, but just a master of what he did. Oh yeah. For sure. I mean, in this film in particular, I only touched on it earlier, but using Don't Fear the Reaper mm. in that first scene with Belly, to me, like, I think Red Right Hand is the needle drop, right? But the Don't Fear the Reaper one was just such a such a fun little, like, touch of genius there. And it just set such a good tone from the get-go where you're like, I know this character and I know these people and actually I understand what's going on here. Even if you, like, get surprised by who is Ghostface, which I don't know if you should be. (laughs) I just think you kind of get a vibe for Billy immediately with that needle drop and I think that's really good. He's just so good at climbing in and out of windows really quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean... Oh, actually, I have also thought of another one outside to scream that horror comedy i guess but when they use don't stop me now and Shaun oh, of the yeah. dead i love how they watch Shaun of the dead in four as like the updated horror yes. landscape very fun 
Oh, and Redbone by Childish Gambino and Get Out. I remember the first time hearing that. I was like, oh, oh, I'm all in. Mm. Let's go. This is going to be a great time. So we have one more email, and this is from Golgarafield. And Golgarafield writes, per request from Blue Sky, if you could take the cast of Scream and put them into a different movie, what would you choose? There's a second part to this, but I'm going to – let's start with that. If you could take the cast of Scream, who and what would you want to do with that? Wow. So I think there is actually, like, a legitimately really clever answer here where you could, like, move a lot of these pieces around and make a a really cool film about it. However, I'm about to say quite possibly a combination of words that no one has ever said before. (laughs) I would take the cast of Scream, and when I say the cast of Scream, I mean your main four, so Neve Campbell, Skate Ulrich. Matthew Lillard and Rose McGowan and put them in the 2013 romantic comedy I Give It A Year. For anyone who hasn't seen I Give It A Year, I would not like you. (laughs) I Give It A Year is about a couple who have like a whirlwind romance and get immediately married and then after their wedding they meet this other couple and go on double dates with them and what happens is they realize that they're all with the wrong people so the married couple get divorced and the other couple splits up and they date each other and what i'm saying is this is about billy and sydney being together yeah immediately breaking up sydney gets a serum and billy gets a shoe and i just think it's funny and there's no murder because everyone realized what's going on and what everyone is sublimating. And it's all that's fine. Really fun. <laughs> and good for them. And good for them. But truly, I do believe that is a string of words that no one has ever put together. <laughs> Making history here. That's, a, that's my bet. Let me see. Um, maybe not the first thing that popped in my head, but the first thing that was like, huh, it's like sex lies and videotape. Oh. Kind of like putting these yeah, like teens in sort fun. of like a more of like an adult sort of thriller. And then I was like, what if we like mix up the teen thing and do Clueless with these guys? Oh yes. my God. Would that mean that David Arquette mm. is Paul Rudd? Oh my God. Rose McGowan yeah. is Paul Rudd. I, I would watch that. Absolutely. So, there is your answer on that one. And then the second part, we've talked a lot about this, but does Matthew Lillard have a crush on Skeet Ulrich in the movie? Skeet clearly hates his friend Lillard, but Lillard just loves his friend Skeet. Excited for the new episode, Golgarafield. That's incredible. Thanks so much for the question. Great question. Uh, that is true. Matthew Lillard absolutely has a crush on Skeet Ulrich in this movie. It's practically text. And I mean, it makes sense. I like, have you ever had those friends... You think they're the coolest, you project onto them. Oh, yeah. You yeah. haven't met enough people that you don't know what every asshole is like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you kind of create this hero worship inside of a peer relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is at the root of where his love grows for Billy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It seems like Billy elicits that kind of thing from a lot of people. Like everybody kind of holds him in this esteem that you're just like unearned. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just sat there like, wouldn't be me. I'd be like, stay away from me. Don't talk to me. So that is it for our questions today. Karen, thank you so much again. This has been an absolute blast. You know, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. I hope I lived up to being a good ghost face. (laughs) The best. It's been a delight. Thank you. So before we head out of here, why don't you let the people know where they can find you, where they can pick up books and any shows that you're going to be going to? Um, I 
colored a really good book called Bunt by Ngozi Ukazu and Mad Rupert that should be coming out in the fall, either February or April. And that is one that you are going to want to read regardless of my involvement in it. But it was such a treat to get to work on it. I have uh, more things beyond that that I don't think have been announced yet. All my stuff can be found at like Charm Gardens at all the social, well, not all the social medias, but, you know, a select few. The ones we're still yeah. using. And then uh, charmgardens.com is my website and patreon.com slash charmgardens is where I post weekly updates of things. So uh, you can keep up I to date. I love that name, by the way. That's just such good branding. Yeah, thank you so, so much. Good. Yeah, it's really cute. So next episode, we are going to be talking with writer Tucker Lieberman about The Shining from Ooh. Stanley Kubrick and Stephen King. And then we are going to be back with Taryn Freeman, academic and paleontologist. Yes, and we are going to be discussing Alien. Ooh. I'm really excited about both of these. So excited. Questions are closed for the both of those episodes as we try to get a little bit more on schedule. But as you're listening to this, you can right now send in your questions for Satoshi Kon's 1997 Perfect Blue with Science Writer and the pop bottle of my heart, Jordan Block. We are going to be talking with writer, literary agent, and the host and creator of the Cerebro podcast, Connor Goldsmith, on David Lynch's 2001 Hollywood horror, Mulholland Drive. We'll be talking to three-time Eisner Award-winning small press editor and writer, Kat Overland, about Alex Garland's 2014 Ex Machina. And we will be talking about 1973's classic The Wicker Man with aforementioned artist and educator, Cassie G. Johnson. Send in your questions now, right now, to outtogetyoupodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on socials, at least at Blue Sky and Instagram at outtogetyoupod. Like and subscribe if you are enjoying this. Can I say again how much I love this podcast? I'm so excited for what's coming. I love to listen. Thank you. And um, what a treat. You so are glad you dolls. enjoy it. It's been so good. And until then, listeners, we'll see you before you see us. So good. That's the one. <laughs>